with uh, the reality of what Jesus was really like. And we want to invite you, uh, those of you who maybe are not yet in the habit of bringing your own copies of the Bible to church, uh, we want to provide you with one. So if you'll slip your hand up, we'll bring you a Bible if you don't have one, if you don't have an app, if you don't have one on your tablet or your phone, uh, we'll bring one to you. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark And one of the things that is the effect of going through the Gospel of Mark is that he sort of undoes the cultural Jesus. What do I mean by the cultural Jesus? Well, I think we, we, uh, especially in this country, we suffer from keychain Christianity. Keychain Christianity. Uh, Christianity is... A shiny cross that dangles from your rearview mirror or on your necklace. Jesus is somewhat reduced to a fish sticker on the back bumper of your car. It's a cultural version of Jesus that doesn't really exist in Scripture, but it's something we've made of Jesus. We've sort of taken some things that we like about Jesus and we've fashioned him into this other version of Jesus that we will now serve. And those are not Jesus. Uh, Those are false iterations of Jesus. Some of the Jesuses that we are tempted to serve might be the moral Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's a good, wise person to learn from. We treat his teachings like little fortune cookie Confucius sayings. It's good for life. It's good if you apply this. Things will go better with you if you do the things that Jesus taught. So here's a test to see if you serve the moral Jesus. If you were to write down the top five things that are your favorite things about Jesus and write them down and then go back, start at the top and cross out Jesus' name and put in Gandhi or put in Mother Teresa, do the statements remain true? If they pretty much stay intact, you're serving a moral Jesus, but that's not Mark's Jesus. We serve the liberation Jesus, where churches and books and literature and scholars pour over Scripture to try to demonstrate that what Jesus is about is liberating the oppressed. And as heartbreaking as it is to see people that are oppressed, when that becomes the gospel, you've lost the gospel. Because people's ultimate need is not food. A person's ultimate need is not 12 steps to break a habit. So when people serve the liberation Jesus, they offer help to meet physical needs without offering the help that solves the spiritual need, which is the greater problem. We serve the political Jesus. This Jesus fits your party platform. Obviously, Jesus would vote the way you vote. Of course he would. All the Christians that vote the other way, they're morons. So here's the test to see if you serve a political Jesus. If you can't speak peaceably and sensibly with Christians in the party opposite yours, you might be serving the political Jesus and not the real Jesus. The self-help Jesus. The self-help Jesus has produced millions of dollars for the Christian pop literature industry. Christian bookstores that are now closing down doesn't break my heart. 
because I have a hard time going into many of these Christian bookstores and finding something that doesn't worship the self-help Jesus. Seven steps to a better you. Here's how to improve yourself, Jesus' way. But if something about you is what most motivates you, then you're serving a self-help Jesus. The inspiring Jesus. The Jesus that makes you a better man. The Jesus that helps you experience better womanhood. If reading about Jesus inspires you to achievement or toughening up, then the Bible for you is kind of like reading about Shackleton's adventures, you know? Wow, Shackleton was great. Look at these guys, how much they survived. I'm a survivor. I'm going to press through my trials. Thanks for the inspiration, Jesus. You got the wrong Jesus. He's not here to inspire you. None of these Jesuses can deliver. They all end to the same road of hopelessness. Because they don't solve the real issue. So which Jesus do you serve? How do you view him? Now, As we walk through the Gospel of Mark, we see the disciples trying to figure that out. Maybe not trying hard enough. But all of these episodes, Mark chooses them to undo the fake Jesuses that might float around. And the disciples and the people then may have shared versions of it. The Pharisees would have liked the religious Jesus, a Torah explaining Jesus, but not more than that. The disciples are probably a mixed group. Some of them want a Rome-killing Jesus, and some of them want... Uh, a buddy to hang out with. Some of them want a redirection in life, like Levi. He didn't want to be a tax collector. He knows he's being hated. And Jesus gives him a new lease on life. Well, that's cool. But so they follow Jesus, and there's something about Jesus that they love, but they don't get who he is yet. And it's a problem. So Jesus brings them into a situation that's going to unearth that problem and hopefully start putting them on a path where they don't serve a false version of him, but instead serve him for who he is and that is the experience when they get on the boat with Jesus and encounter a storm. Now, many of you that have been around Scripture for a while, you're very familiar with this passage. I even preached this passage a few years ago. We're, gonna, we're, we're here again, but we're going to unveil some things that I think even last time I didn't quite take it to that point. Let's read the familiar story. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. This is the last chunk of Mark's fourth chapter. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now there's, the author is not really telling us, we'll pause here a second, the author is not really telling us, Mark is not letting us in on why he was asleep. Some people say, well look at what just happened. He was teaching to the point of not even eating. You remember the family was trying to get him out of the house to seize him. Uh, in our modern language version translation of that, would be to jump him, get him out of there so he can eat. He's healing and teaching to the point of not even eating. This guy's going to kill himself. So surely he's exhausted, he was human, he was tired. But there's another hint in this passage that, tells, that 
shows us that it's not just that he was tired, but that there's a sense in which it didn't faze him. The storm didn't bother him. It bothered the disciples. And it was a great windstorm. It's hard for us to imagine if you've never been caught in a storm or a hurricane, if, if you've never been a little kid helping your parents put max, masking tape X's on your windows and, and grabbing plywood and putting it over windows and stuff because you're trying to embrace a storm that's about to hit. Um, it might be hard to imagine. They're in a boat. It's not like water's trickling in. It's not like there's a little hole in the boat and they're just... It, the waves are breaking into the boat. It is a fierce storm that has fishermen scared for their lives. So they're scrambling, probably grabbing buckets to bail water. What else are you going to do? Grab oars, someone trying to steer it, lower the, the sail. I don't know what they're doing. They're scrambling about the boat. And then somehow they notice, where's, where's teacher? Where's he at? Could really use a hand to sleep. And I love the little detail he gives us. Asleep on a cushion. Jesus was like, I'm good. Well, these boats, they had cushions. The steersmen would sit on the cushion while everyone else tried to row. They notice he's asleep on the cushion. What do they do? They woke him. Verse 38, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, it's easy to give these guys a hard time, you know, but that's probably not the most polite way to approach Jesus, your master, your rabbi, your teacher. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care that we're perishing? Rude. But he doesn't rebuke them for being rude. He doesn't go, how dare you wake up my sleep? How dare you disturb my slumber? Why are you waking me up? I'm trying to sleep. No, that's not his response. Jesus takes issue not with the fact that they woke him up, and he doesn't take issue with their rude question, but he takes issue with what's behind the question and why they woke him up. It's how they woke him up that disturbs Jesus. But as Mark tells the story, he resolves the storm issue first. Verse 39, he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. Could you imagine that in the moment? Everyone, these expert sailors and fishermen, they know what to do, man. You bail water. You pull the oars, the oars in, or put the oars out, or put the oars out just on the left side because the waves are breaking on this side. I don't know. I'm not a mariner. But they have their things to try to figure out what to do with ropes and sails and oars and buckets. And Jesus doesn't grab a tool, and he doesn't grab an oar, and he doesn't try to grab a rope. He steps up on the edge of the boat, I would imagine, and speaks out into the storm loud enough for them to hear it and record what he said. And he talks to the storm. Peace! Be still! And he's just talking to it. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Have you ever been somewhere where it's so quiet, the quiet is disturbing? Their ears are still ringing from the storm, and all they hear is 
sit still. No waves. No rain. No, it's just quiet. And in this quietness, he turns his attention to them. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Now, if he just asked that question, they look at each other like, because we're about to die. (laughs) We were going to drown. But then he gets to his point a little more specifically in a second question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, when we look at that, we're asking ourselves, what is Jesus' issue with them? What is his, what is his, why is he chastising them for waking him up in the middle of this storm that anybody would have assessed was a killer storm? The boat can't keep taking on water. It's just physically impossible for a boat to stay afloat with water keeps coming in it, period. You and I would have known that. His issue is that they woke him up with a lack of faith. As he wakes up and tells him, he calms the sea, and he asks them, have you still no faith? In other versions, it's other places, he asks them, why do you have such little faith? But here it's still no faith, huh? None there at all. It's hollow, just there's nothing in there. The faith doesn't exist yet, huh? Which means to me that they didn't wake him up thinking that he was going to do anything remotely close to what he did. They didn't think he had it in him. They've seen things. he's, He's rebuked demons. He's gotten demons to shut up. He's healed fevers. He's healed leprosy. He's even healed paralysis. Dude, that gets carried around on his mat, and then he doesn't need the mat. Just like that, he doesn't need the mat anymore. He walks out himself. They've seen that. But even though they've seen those things, they still don't get who he is. Nobody really gets who Jesus is. It's a common theme in Mark. In chapter 1, you remember when he's teaching, and then a demoniac comes, and he, he casts out the demon, And what is the response from the people? What is this? New teaching with authority. He even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Who is this guy? Even the unclean spirits obey him. Who is he? Then in chapter 2, they bring that paralytic that I just mentioned on the mat. And before healing him, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And that chaps the hide of the Pharisees. And they look around at each other and go, he's blaspheming. Who can possibly forgive someone's sins except God? Who does this guy think he is? There's the who question again. Who's this guy that even the spirits obey him? Who's this guy that he even proclaims forgiveness over someone? Something that only God can do. And then in chapter 3, Mark tells us he continues to cast out unclean spirits and they proclaim, you are the son of God. And he tells them, hush, be quiet, don't tell anybody. So the demons know who he is, the spirits know who he is, but everyone else around is going, who is this guy? What is this teaching? Where is it coming from? How is he forgiving sins? How is he casting out demons? And you remember they even said, he must be casting out demons from the power of demons. And then Jesus very politely said, wow, that's pretty dumb. But they're trying to figure out who he is, and Mark is saying, the Pharisees couldn't figure it out, 
the people in the crowds haven't really figured it out, and the disciples have yet to really figure it out. Because they don't wake up Jesus going, Jesus, you command storms and waves. Jesus, you are in charge of all things. Jesus, you knit us together in our mother's womb. Jesus, in Genesis 1, and the world was spoken into existence, you were the word. No, they didn't approach him like that. They approached him as some other Jesus. Maybe not the moral Jesus, but maybe the, the miracle Jesus. Maybe the fix things for us Jesus. But they didn't approach him as the Jesus that they were supposed to approach him. He was still a kind of keychain, an accessory to their life. He, they didn't figure out yet who he really was. Now to understand this passage and what Mark is doing here, we have to look at some Old Testament passages. It's not that you can't possibly understand what's happening in Mark without the Old Testament passages, but it's kind of like uh, if you've ever read a novel that's in a series of novels and you jumped in in the third novel and you're like, what's going on? I don't know who this guy is. Why does everybody hate this person? You're not sure what's happening. You jump into a middle of a series in Netflix because all your friends are like, oh my goodness, tonight's the one, tonight's the episode, Frank is going to kill so, I don't know, whatever. You jump in and you're confused. You don't know who Frank is, who the character is, why there's so much tension because you haven't seen the prior episodes. Can you understand what's happening in this episode? Yeah, on one level, but you'd understand it on a deeper level if you had the prior episodes, right? The Old Testament, all of it, is the prior episodes to Jesus. To better understand Jesus, you better understand your Old Testament. One of those passages would be Psalm 107. We'll put that up on the screen for you. You could turn there if you want. Psalm 107. Now, think about how ancient this passage is, even to these guys that are on the boat experiencing this. And when we read this uh, passage, you'll see, I think, parallels. It's talking about God as a rescuing God, the Lord who redeems and actually, this is the same chapter that I opened up with when I read those first three verses for us to start our worship time together. This is further down in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, and the capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, he's God. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. What did they see? For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. Whose courage? The sailors. Verse 27, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. What testament is this in? Because that sounds like Mark 4 and Matthew 8 and Luke 8. All three of those gospel writers record this episode that fulfills Psalm 107 right in front of their eyes. They're in a boat, the waves are crashing, they're staggering like drunken men, trying to grab whatever they can grab. And eventually they turn to the Lord and ask him to do something. And what does he do? He tells the sea to hush. So what is Mark trying to demonstrate here with the parallels? By God orchestrating this event, what is God trying to communicate through this passage? This man in the boat is not just a man. 
This man is the boat that you shouldn't be waking up to help you bail water or waking up to help you say a prayer or wake you up to help you gain favor with God. This person that you're waking up, he is God. Who can command the waters? Who do the unclean spirits proclaim as the Holy One? Who can tell the unclean spirits, hush? Who can tell a stormy sea to hush? The Lord, Yahweh, that's the only one. And when Jesus tells them, why do you still not have faith? I don't think he's saying, why do you still not think that I can help you? I think what he's saying is, how do you still not understand that I am over all things, including a deadly storm? And I think this is the key thing we miss. When we've got the moral Jesus, the political Jesus, the exemplary Jesus, the inspiring Jesus, all these false Jesus, what we're missing is his sovereign reign over all things. And then the implication is that if he's sovereign sovereign and reigning over all things, he is worthy of trust. He's worthy of our faith. Not as an attachment to our lives, but as one who's Lord and sovereign over all things. We know this is what they didn't understand because of verse 41. The disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? There's the who question again, right? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now they're asking the question everyone else has been asking. They're they're saying it now. And I love how Mark puts this detail, and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, we know that. The storm was going to kill them. No, 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 no. They had a regular fear when the storm was going to kill them. You know, your run-of-the-mill fear of death that you might experience? That was the other fear, not this great fear. This fear is greater than the fear they had when they thought they were dying. What fear is that? not knowing who in the world just did that. Who is this man standing here that can hush a storm? That's scary, dude. That's what they're thinking of themselves. They are filled with great fear in asking one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus has them where he wants them. He wants them in a place where he's able to demonstrate to them what they're lacking. And it's a faith in his person. And his person is, he's not just a guy. He's not just a teacher. He doesn't just teach in synagogues. And he doesn't pull rabbits out of hats and fake, you know, do miracles that you might go home and go, I don't know, maybe that paralytic wasn't really paralytic. He's going to blow all doubt out of the way, out of the water, pun intended, Right? And demonstrate to them, guys, this is no trick. I just hushed a storm that was about to kill you. And what you needed when you woke me up was faith that I'm that. We call on Jesus. We pray that Jesus would help with the elections. But are we praying to him as the political Jesus or are we praying to him as the Psalm 107 Jesus? I mean, it's a big difference. So what Jesus is trying to do is push all those other false idols, really, out of the way and demand something of his disciples. 
that has to do with a faith in him that he is sovereign and to be trusted fully. Now, when we apply this verse, it's easy to say storms of life. This passage teaches that uh, when you encounter a storm in your life, whatever it might be, you lost a job, your best friend broke up with you, you know, uh, you lost a Facebook follower, whatever it is that bothers you, right? Your storm in life, and not to make light of it, some of us experiencing real difficulties. Call on Jesus, and if you apply the faith in Jesus that he's asking for, he'll hush your storm. He hushed it for them, right? And that is not, that. I think that's the farthest thing from Mark's mind. I don't think Mark is thinking, I just want to put this in here so you guys realize every time you experience something difficult, all you have to do is wake Jesus up in the right way. Wake Jesus up with the right faith, and he'll do it for you. A couple reasons why we know that can't be true is, one, Jesus solved the storm with no faith. (laughs) They didn't wake him up with the right faith. They woke him up with no faith. If we were to follow this method, we would wake Jesus up with no faith and watch him solve storms. That's the very opposite of what's happening here. We also know this because he gave them a promise that most of us don't have in our particular circumstances. If you look at verse 35, it starts by saying, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. If you get diagnosed with an illness, did Jesus give you a word straight to you that he'll get you to the other side of that illness? No, I I think most of us would say, no, I didn't get a specific word from Jesus. Well, they did, and they were going to go to the other side. They shouldn't have doubted that. But, of course, they think, well, what can possibly get us to the other side if we're about to die in this boat? Jesus, wake up. But they didn't approach him as the one who himself could still the stormy sea. So we know it's not storms of life. If you have enough faith, he'll fix your storm in life because they didn't have faith in this passage because they get a promise that most of us don't get in our circumstances and because the rest of the Bible doesn't bear that out. Most of these guys end up dying. Except for the one dude that, oh, he didn't get killed. He got boiled almost to death and then left on an island in exile. John. What happened in those storms? Did they not have enough faith? No, that was God's plan for them, to experience suffering and pain. So the rest of the Bible makes it complete. I mean, you can go to Job, you can go to James. There will be trials, and they're going to be fiery, and they're going to be various. Count it as joy. How can you possibly count the trial as joy? If your joy is Jesus and not some other fake version of Jesus, then it's possible. But if your joy is in a fake Jesus, a Jesus that gives you things, a Jesus that's kind of like a vending machine, you come and you tithe, you come and do your Bible study, you come and attend church, those are your coins that you're sticking in the vending machine, and then he pops out a blessing like removing a trial, if that's your version of Jesus, you don't serve Jesus. And when that trial doesn't leave quickly enough or ever, you'll leave him because you feel like he left you. If you serve the real Jesus, he's going through a trial, through suffering, through pain, I'm the one, I'm Lord. And I have the ability to calm storms, but it's not a promise that I'll calm every single trial in your life. 
So the point of this passage is not what to do with trials. The point of this passage is what do you do with Jesus? That's the point. I have to take you to one other Old Testament passage, but you can, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. What I want to do is draw some parallels for you that I think are important, and we're going to get to why it's important in a moment. But I'm going to admittedly lean on the knowledge of probably most of you in here with this passage in the Old Testament. Now, some of you may, might think, ah, I never heard of it. I haven't read that before. That's okay. Um, but I think you'll catch what's happening here. But most of you, from your days in Sunday school as a little kid, remember the story of Jonah. And what we remember about Jonah is that he was a disobedient prophet that God called to go preach to the Gentiles. He didn't want to go preach to those dirty Gentiles. And he ran away. He jumped on a ship to go the opposite, sail in the opposite direction. God sends a storm. The storm is going to destroy the ship. The sailors are running around doing stuff. And they approach Jonah. And Jonah says, you know what? It's God punishing me, so throw me overboard, and the storm will go away, and they throw him overboard, the storm goes away, a great fish, some animal, some whale, we don't know what it was, it swallowed Jonah whole, three days later, it vomits him out on the land, he's like, oh, he reluctantly goes and preaches to Nineveh, Nineveh responds to the message, they get saved, that kills Jonah even worse, he hates these people, now they're saved, I hate it, and he goes and sulks under a tree, and then God has uh, a little verbal lashing for him at the end of the book. But even at the end of the book, Jonah never really changes. Now that's the story of Jonah, four chapters. I gave it to you in whatever that was, 30 seconds. Okay? Now, if you had recently done your devotions in Jonah, chapter 1, and then came to church and heard a sermon on Mark 4, you would be flipping back to Jonah 1 because you'd be saying, wait a minute, I heard this before. Let me give you some parallels. When Jonah is on the ship, the text tells us a great wind rose so that the ship was breaking up. In Mark, Mark tells us Jesus is on this boat with his disciples. A great wind rose so that waves are breaking into the boat. In Jonah 1, mariners are afraid, they're scrambling, they're running around. But Jonah, by contrast, is asleep, fast asleep. The disciples are on a boat. They're scrambling, running around, fearing for their lives. And then they realize, where's Jesus? He's asleep. They wake Jonah up, and they tell him to do something. Call upon your gods, do something. They wake Jesus up. And from what I think, they were asking him to call upon God the Father or do something, say a special prayer or do something here. In the in Jonah chapter 1, when they throw Jonah overboard, the sea quiets down, it says. It says it ceases its raging. And here the wind has ceased, and there's a great calm. So you see parallels, are, it's hard to miss. If you're a good synagogue-going Jewish uh, disciple, you'd start connecting the dots. Man, it's kind of like we lived out Jonah 1. That's weird. Yeah, it was the same, wasn't it? The storm was breaking up the ship. This storm was sinking our ship. We were experienced sailors. They were experienced sailors. We're running around. We can't fix it. They were running around and couldn't fix it. We looked around and go, who's one person that's not helping? And we saw one person not helping. And it was, for them, it was Jonah. For us, it was Jesus. And both stories end in the sea being calm. And at the end of that story in Jonah 1, 
the pagan sailors worship God. Whoa, who is this God? And at the end of our story, we looked at each other with this great fear. Who is this man? Yeah, we see the parallels, but we also see the differences. Jesus, Jonah was running from his duty to proclaim repentance. Jesus is running to his duty to proclaim repentance. Jonah was thrown into the sea, and the sea was calmed by the Lord. Jesus speaks to the sea, and it calms because he is the Lord. They both end the same. The mariners feared the Lord exceedingly. The disciples are filled with great fear. Why is Mark doing that? Why is God doing that? Why is God enacting an episode in parallel fashion that we see in Jonah chapter 1? I'll give you two reasons. The first reason is because their point is the same. At the end of Jonah 1, these pagan sailors that had no business really understanding who Yahweh was, at the end, they're worshiping Yahweh. They're worshiping the Lord like Jonah is supposed to, and Jonah is still stuck in a whale, and he's going to get vomited, and he still has arguments with God afterwards. Jonah doesn't get it. The Ninevites that he preaches to get it. The mariners that are pagan sailors, they get it, but Jonah doesn't get it. Get what? That we should worship the Lord? Now, what's Mark's point? Mark's point isn't just a generic worship the Lord. He's saying worship Jesus, who is the Lord. Not as a keychain, not as an accessory to your life, but Lord and sovereign over all things and trustworthy in all circumstances. A sovereign reigning Lord, that's Jesus. They get to the same point, but Mark is specifically pointing to Jesus himself as the fulfiller of Psalm 107. The other reason that I think the parallel with Jonah is important is to pull us away from the storms of life interpretation. Because we're going to look at this and we're going to go, okay, yeah, there's going to be trials in my life and all I have to do is understand that he's Lord. And yeah, you're getting it. You're, you're getting it. But if your greatest fear is the trials that you experience in life, you still don't get it. There's another passage Another one that we won't turn to, but uh, in Matthew um, 7, Jesus uses the analogy of a storm. You remember, he says there's two guys that build their house, and one guy builds it on a rock, and the other guy builds it on the sand, and then a storm comes and hits the house, and the guy who built his house on the sand, the house falls apart. It was a terrible foundation. The guy who built his house on the rock survived that storm. Now, I've heard that sermon preached. When the storms of life come and hit you, make sure that you're built on the rock. What is the rock? That's not the point of that, song, that parable either. The point in that parable, and it's clear when you look at it in the text in Matthew 7, what Jesus is talking about is final judgment. That's the storm. The storm that's going to take everybody out. It doesn't matter if on this side of life you have cancer or disease or uh, lost your job or uh, experiencing a difficult marriage or your kids hate you. Whatever the real difficult thing is on this side of life, there's one enemy that finally takes all of us out. It's the final storm that everyone's got to be ready for, everyone has to have an answer for, and it's death and judgment. It's the great equalizer. And when Jesus uses the storm analogy in Matthew 7, he's not talking about experiencing things in life. What he's talking about is that final time, 
when judgment comes, some people are going to fall and some people will stand. Some will be accepted, some will be rejected. Some will be goats, some will be sheep. Some are in, some are out. It's the great divider, death and judgment. And what is the difference between the person whose house is built on a rock and the person whose house is built on sand? The person whose house is built on sand might have had Jesus in their life, but Jesus wasn't life for them. The person who built their house on the rock, they built everything on the foundation of Jesus' lordship. He's it. He's everything. Jesus is the rock, not morals, not doing good things, not showing up at church. Those are little pieces, but that's not the piece. The foundation, the rock, is Jesus himself who gets you ready for that ultimate storm. Now you track with Jonah, and you realize there's other parallels in there where Jonah goes into this sea. If you connect it with how the Bible uses the sea throughout the Bible, a sea is a representation of judgment and chaos and punishment. That's why the world is flooded, right? And Noah is saved in the ark, but the world experiences judgment. In the opening verses of Genesis... What is the earth? It's chaotic and void. But what is it? It's full of just water. Before the land appears and there's animals, it's just a big globe of water representing chaos and emptiness before he brings order out of it. When you read the book of Revelation, some of you who really love going out on boats and fishing, you might shed a little tear when you come across that verse that says, in that new earth, there will be no more sea. And someone like myself, I'm like, cool, I I like the mountains. I could go, lakes are cool, lakes are cool. There's not that much stuff that's going to eat you alive in lakes, right? But those of you that love, I love it, jellyfish stinging me, and and then go bake myself on the sand. Okay, but in the new earth, maybe God will give you a different perspective on the beach. But why does the author in Revelation say those sea will be no more? Well, he's, he's saying there's no more judgment. There's no more of that chaos, that darkness, that cold. Uh, representation of judgment because that's what the oceans and the sea and floods tend to represent in Scripture. Jonah goes down into that judgment and then comes out of it alive. Now, you might be sitting there going, Lucas, this sounds a little stretchy. You're going a little bit too much into the Jonah just because it says three days and three nights. Yeah, but this is what Jesus said in Matthew 12, didn't he? Remember, they were demanding a sign. Jesus, give us a sign. If you're the person that you say you are, give us a sign right now, right now. Do it. Do it. Show us. Levitate. Pull something out of a hat. Do something extraordinary to make us go, okay, fine, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one. And he looks at them and he says, you're not going to get a sign. I'm not going to do tricks. I'm not going to do magic. You're going to get one sign. And that's the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the grave, essentially, for three days and three nights. And Jesus is saying, just as Jonah came out alive, I'm going to come out alive. And what am I solving? By going down into the depth, down into the floodwaters of judgment, and coming out on the other side of that judgment alive. What am I accomplishing there? I'm resolving your ultimate storm. I'm fixing your biggest problem, and it's not job loss, and it's not the heartbreaks that we experience on this side. They're tough. It's tough, but it's not the ultimate problem. The profound issue that we have to be reckoning with is what happens when death and judgment come. 
Has Jesus solved that for you? He doesn't if he's a little mini Jesus, if he's a little cute Jesus, if he's a Jesus gnome, a Jesus on a t-shirt with the smiling teeth and the thumbs up, if he's just, if he's just the source of memes that you like, that doesn't solve judgment for you guys. What solves judgment? What kind of faith? Faith that the disciples needed to have. The faith that disciples were starting to come around to at the end. Who is this guy? More than a teacher, more than a moral example, more than a source of inspiration. He is Psalm 107. He solves our ultimate problem because ultimately Psalm 107 is about being redeemed. And it just gives examples of how God saves his people, but pointing to how God ultimately saves his people. Because even if we die out at sea or in a car crash or in a plane, God forbid, some disease, we get sick, we never know. We're fragile. No matter what happens on this side of eternity, we need to be ready for that ultimate problem that Jesus solves in the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that he fixes things for you. The good news of the gospel is that he rescues you from death and judgment. How? He takes it. He goes down into the ocean like Jonah. And that's how he quiets it for us. Let's pray.